Did they fight to save their boat and their lives? Did they look into the faces of their attackers, or was it an ambush? Did the killers approach them silently, or did they betray the couple, acting like friends to gain their trust? Who died first, and did the other have to bear witness? These are just a few of the many questions left behind in the wake of Ghost Ship, the Kalia 3. The only witness, a domestic boat cat named Gypsy, who was unable to tell the story of Bill and Patty Kamerer. They were killed aboard their home, the Kalia 3, while cruising in the Exuma Islands of the Bahamas. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Welcome aboard. I hope you enjoy today's true crime case. On July 31, 1980, Harry Urell and his son Peter are in a small fishing boat. They have spent the day fishing and traveling near Pipe Key, which is just north of Staniel Key in the Bahamas. Staniel Key is most famously known for its swimming pigs and for Thunderball Grotto. There's a famous diving scene from the James Bond movie Thunderball, and it was recorded there. Pipe Key is about 10 miles north and served as a tracking station during World War II. The former tenants didn't leave much behind, except a few falling down buildings, some trash piles, and a dock that extends invitingly alongside a beautiful crystalline cove. Today, Little Pipe Key hosts a private island retreat, complete with 25,000 square feet of living space, an Olympic-sized pool, a private helicopter landing pad, world-class private hot tub and extensive dock frontage to host your super yacht. Oh, and did I mention the private seaplane dock? It's all available to you for 75000 a night. Please invite me if you're going and have some extra room, because that's a little out of my budget, but I'd love to see it anyway. Back to our case. Harry and Peter had been doing some fishing and shark hunting, but sunset was closing in on them quickly. They gently nosed their motor cruiser into the lagoon at Pipe Key on July 31st, just as afternoon becomes evening. The sky is turning a beautiful orange to yellow to red as the sun was setting. The harbor was peaceful, but something was amiss. A boat sat bobbing in the waves, as they do, but this one was much too close to the rocky shoreline. Harry said, quote, I saw this boat just floating there. We hailed it by name, the Kalia 3, and got no answer. So I pulled alongside. The stench was horrible. I saw Bill Kamer's body, bloody, and draped over the side. End quote. Harry Urell, who tells the majority of this tale, was 62 at the time the murders took place. He was a former Illinois state representative, a self-made businessman turned public servant, and an avid fisherman. He was also a very experienced builder who had a home in the Florida Keys. He had chosen this week to take his son and his 26-foot powerboat named the Shark 2 to the Bahamas for all the right reasons. The beauty, the tranquility, and of course, the fishing. Harry was also a veteran, and what he saw in front of him in that dinghy for a moment reminded him of his days as a U.S. Marine in the bloody Pacific campaigns of World War II. When he climbed across to board the Kalia III, he half expected to meet his maker. As he did so, a black cat 
bolted from a lower cabin, shrieking. Peter, Harry's son, was holding a high-powered rifle and almost shot his father due to his adrenaline surge after hearing and seeing the screeching cat catapult from the boat. Harry paused for a moment, trying to absorb what he was seeing as he peered across the deck. What his eyes told him was horrible. He said, quote, The deck was full of spent gun shells and splintered shotgun marks. A bikini top was full of blood. A pair of sunglasses was shattered. Harry tried to make sense of the scene in front of him. He later believed the vacationing couple had come across some secret stash on the island, maybe drugs or money, and radioed authorities on an often used or common channel on the VHF radio. For those who may not know, when a VHF is used, anyone who is on that channel and near the caller can hear the conversation. Hailing channels are often heard by anyone in the harbor. Perhaps they made a call which was monitored by both police, criminals, and local cruisers. Shortly after this call, Harry believed the ship was boarded and not by police, and that's when the slaughter occurred. The victims were Bill Kamer, 47, and Patty Kamer, 35. From a deck of his own boat, Harry and Peter examined the sailboat with feelings of dread. There appeared to be shotgun blast in the hull, or the body of the boat. In the cockpit, which is the center seating area, a five-gallon gas can was mounted to the back railing, and it had an obvious pattern of buckshot in it. There was blood everywhere on the decks, on the cushions, and there were three flare gun shells laying on the ground, telling a tale of a cry for help, or perhaps it was anger or defense. Inside of the boat had been ransacked. The smaller dinghy, which was used from getting from the bigger boat to shore, was hanging off the back. Inside it was a man, half draped over the side. The man's face was in the water. The lower half of his body was covered in blue sailcloth. The odor coming from the boat was atrocious and plentiful. These bodies had been here for a while. The man appeared to be a middle-aged white man, and he had been there for days. State Representative Harry looked on disheartened. It had begun as a day of fishing and cruising the islands, he recalled. But what we found out at that small anchorage unfortunately became a part of my life and has continued to disturb me over the years. The whole thing turned into a labyrinth of lies. The Kalia Three had sailed from Fort Myers Beach only one month earlier. Aboard the boat were Bill and his wife Patty, the soon-to-be victims. This was their third boat named the Kalia. It had been named after an Alaskan wind. In 1976, they began working on finishing their dream boat when it was just an empty hull. It was a beautiful cutter rig sloop. It was comfortable and solid, and it would safely carry them on their dream cruise. Bill was a strong, sturdy sailor. He was lean, suntanned, knowledgeable, and capable. He was described as a dreamer and a jack-of-all-trades by his surviving son, Bill. The trip was meant to be the fulfillment of a lifelong ambition. Above all, Bill was self-reliant. He had experience managing a marina, but didn't want a house planted on the ground. His wife, Patty, was athletic and vivacious. She had a spirit of adventure and a positive outlook on life. She was an outgoing people person and, as a huge added bonus, 
was an adept surgical nurse. Patty kept concise logs of her, their daily travels and adventures. Anchors up, she wrote in the ship's log on the day the Kamers left the United States. Through her journals, we're able to see that the Kalia Three spent time in Marsh Harbor in the Abacos, which are in the northern Bahamas. They spent time with some friends who had been invited aboard their boat for a few days. These friends said that the Kamers were very free-spirited and survivor types, quite non-conventional. Before this adventure, Bill and Patty had built a cabin in British Columbia and spent the winter and spring there, but it was their life dream to build a boat and sail through the Bahamas. When the Kalia was finally ready, Bill and Patty had a great home mortgage burning party on the dock and began their trip a few days later. A little bit further along their trip, on July 16th, the boat was anchored in Spanish Wells. Bill and Patty's friends left them there and flew home to Fort Myers. One week later, Patty wrote, moored in Pipe Key, in their log. This was her last entry. The only witness to the horrors of their death was by the ship's cat, whose name was Gypsy. Harry Urell wishes the cat could talk to tell him the story of what happened on that fateful day. The day of the grisly discovery of the Kalia Three, Peter and Harry were maneuvering the boat closer to the islands as they were hoping for a smooth ride as they transited south. As they neared the small pipe key, Harry saw the mast of the Kalia Three sticking up beyond a rock outcropping, and headed over to say hello and to make sure he was located where he thought he was. The boat seemed to be drifting in the anchorage, and no one came on board the deck at the sound of the, the motorboat as it approached the Kalia. Harry shouted, Ahoy, Kalia! three times with no answer. As he drew closer, he noticed a bloody cushion hanging over the cockpit rail and the dinghy tied to the stern. He attempted to pull the Kalia's anchor line to tow it away from the rocks, but the line had been cut and was unraveling. When he pulled around to the back, he caught the first smell of decay. He immediately went to work ordering his son to get the rifle that they always kept on the boat. Then he climbed aboard the Kalia. There he saw the body and the blood and the aftermath of the gun blasts. He immediately went back to his boat and made calls on the radio. He couldn't reach Basra, the Bohemian Air and Sea Rescue. He couldn't get them to respond, but he was finally able to hear from the Bohemian authorities about what to do. He used the time to make videos and photograph the body and the boat. He was detailed and would have made a great detective. He made notes that the man's face had been clean-shaven and that the scalp had been lifted from the skull. The scene in the cockpit bothered him the most. He saw the flare casings on the deck and on the bimini top, but he couldn't find the woman. He thought her body might be wrapped in the dinghy with that same sailcloth that covered her husband. He said there was a lot of cloth bundled there, and that dinghy was slightly awash from the weight. He said, quote, I didn't want to touch anything, though, because it was a crime scene. About an hour later, the Bohemian Defense Force aircraft arrived. They flew around the boat, circling them, and then landed at Staniel Key Airport. Harry made his way there to meet with the pilots. And this is where the case gets frustrating. The Bohemian who he met there was named Constable Bradley Pratt, and he had an associate with him. 
They told Harry that they had seen the body in the dinghy and photographed it from the air. Harry wanted them to go to Pipe Key right away to get the body, but Constable Pratt refused, saying he had no body bag and that the defense vessel would be on the scene in the morning. The next morning started with what was a hurricane of mistakes, cover-ups, and lies. The first thing that went wrong was that Constable Pratt amended his story to say he had not seen a body in a dinghy or anywhere else. Later, when the Bahamian defense vessel Exuma towed the Kalia 3 to Staniel Key, things went even darker. Harry said, quote, They brought her in and tied her up at the Happy People Marina at a public dock with no guard stationed. People at the dock, locals, and what all climbed aboard to look at the blood and go into the boat's cabin. It was completely irresponsible. I raised hell until they moved the Kalia away from the crowd and put a guard on her. What was even more startling was there was no longer a body in the dinghy. When he asked a police officer about it, the officer told him, It's gone. Twelve years later, the Bahamian General Counsel Winston Munnings in Miami responded to a question about Bill and Patty and the Kalia 3 by saying, quote, You mean the alleged occurrence? There is no supporting evidence to show a crime took place other than a disappearance. No body, no crime, has been their attitude all along, said Harry. This case is known in diplomatic circles as, quote, the mystery of the body in the boat, end quote, and it's officially unsolved. Harry tried to help the case along. He saw what was happening in the Bahamas and contacted the U.S. State Department. He said, Quote, our government just played along with the Bohemians. Our State Department didn't want anything to do with disturbing their relationship with former Prime Minister Lyndon Piddling. Supposedly, the United States couldn't help in an investigation unless they were requested by a foreign government. I was told it was a matter of sovereignty and our Coast Guard had no jurisdiction, but we see our Coast Guard cutters working those waters every day. Harry continues, First, the Senate Department even said, If I had ever seen a body, it couldn't have been Bill Kamer's because it was clean-shaven and Kamer had a big beard. But I have a copy of a letter that Patty wrote one week before they were killed that says Bill is pretty again because he shaved his beard. Not only that, but Harry had taken video and pictures of the crime scene, and the Kamer's own son identified his father in the pictures. Pratt, the Bahamian constable, said earlier that he couldn't get the body with no body bag, but a Bahamian newspaper reported that the coroner was unable to accompany Pratt and his colleagues to the scene, so he had left a body bag with the officers. Harry says, The lies continued because, quote, I have one of the photographs of the Bahamians that they took from their airplane that shows my boat alongside the Kalia and the body in the dinghy. A plane out of Fort Lauderdale corroborates this story because they had seen the same thing the day before. Harry got his own film developed and the State Department took a look at it. After this, the Bahamian police commissioner then amended his statement to say that the pilots did see a body in the dinghy, but the body was gone when the Kalia 3 was towed to Staniel Key. And, quote, what happened to it, we honestly don't know. U.S. Embassy Vice Consul Philip while inspecting the murder scene, said, The bloodstains were the only evidence of apparent violence. Harry, utterly blown away by this statement, responded, 
The gun, a hunting rifle kept aboard the Kalia, is gone. The flare gun is gone. The mic cord was ripped out of the radio, which was damaged. A sock, filled with several thousand dollars, kept in the head, is gone. The yacht was cut free and drifting, and there's blood in the cockpit. The dinghy is probably clean because it was half filled with water, and the camers are missing. If that doesn't sound like foul play, I don't know what does. This frustrated Harry to no end. There was complete disinterest by both governments. Harry said, as a state representative, I was completely stonewalled. The average citizen would have had no chance at all. In 1993, 13 years after the murders, the assistant commissioner of police said essentially that the case was cold. He followed that statement with blame shifting. He went on to say that type of situation would have been handled by our overseas citizen services section, but there is no record of that matter. If a file is active and there is no new evidence on the case, or the Bohemians don't add anything to it for three years, the files are retired or destroyed. When Bill and Patty's sons were interviewed, their son Bill said, The plight of our family has been ignored. No one seems to care. They have been slaughtered by pirates, picked off like moving targets on the open sea. The State Department has done nothing. One phone call, that's all two American citizens are apparently worth. The family doesn't want to talk about it. There's still too much hurt. People who are much smarter than I am question what happened 40 years ago. It's been a long time. But the few people who keep the case alive say the truth likely lies within three small, tight-knit circles. In the 1980s, 200 U.S. yacht cabin cruisers and their crews disappeared without a trace on the high seas, most of them in the Caribbean. During that time, there may have been more pirates there than during the heyday of the Spanish Main. The Bahamas consists of 700 islands spread over 90,000 nautical miles. Some of these islands are only a few hundred square yards to the 1,600 square miles of Andros Island. Plenty of places to hide drugs and arrange drop-offs or meetings. It's likely that pirates were involved. The Camerers kept a loaded rifle in a locker near their sleeping berth. They always kept it loaded, says the couple's friend who had been aboard the boat just days before the couple were murdered. At the time of the killings, the Kamer's son said, quote, Dad carried a deer rifle in the event of piracy, but Mom said she relied more on the flare gun, not just as a signal for help, but as a weapon. Harry went on to say, The Kamer's may have found narcotics stashed in those abandoned buildings and were killed in fear they'd report it. The attitude of some of the islanders that lived in the area at the time also bothered Harry. He recalled that a Bohemian businessman had arrived at Pipe Key with his powerboat while Harry and his son waited for word from Nassau after broadcasting the distress call. He said the man climbed into the boat, looked into the dinghy, went to the bow of the boat, and then shrugged his shoulders at Harry. Then the man got into his own boat, tied up to the wharf at Pipe Key, and walked to shore in one of those three old abandoned buildings. Harry said, quote, he was in there for maybe 15 minutes, and then he left without saying a word. When we met him later that day, he was very cold toward us, and told us he had no room for us at his marina. Harry still wonders 
with all the daily boat traffic moving through the Pipe Key area, why the body and the boat weren't reported by anyone else until he came along, which was about five days after Patty's last entry in the boat's log. A little more history into that area of the Bahamas brings in a second possibility. Norman's Key was the island headquarters of the cocaine cartel boss, Carlos Leader, in the early 80s. It was known by sailors that it was very dangerous to arrive unannounced at Norman's Key. Boats were constantly coming and going, and men with guns patrolled the beaches there. In 1988, Leader was in the midst of a drug smuggling trial. George Barron, who was from Fort Lauderdale and was a smuggler, attested that in early July, a week or so before the murder, Leader had a boatload of marijuana that was being sent to Norman's Key. When it was in the general area, George Barron was to transfer the bales onto smaller boats that would then be taken to Fort Lauderdale. He went on to say that the plans to meet the pot boat were delayed because Leader was concerned about another large sailing boat that had been off the island for several days. Then in the evening, Barron said, two Germans and two Bahamians armed with rifles and shotguns left Leader's Norman's Key base in a 30-foot racing boat. I talked to Joe later, and he said not to worry. The problem had been taken care of. The four men returned two hours later with a radio that appeared to have been ripped from another boat. He went on to say, The next day, the grass was loaded into speedboats and taken to Florida. On the way out of the area, Barron testified that he spotted the sailboat, presumably the Kalia 3, near a small key, and it looked like it was drifting free. There was a lot of speculation at the time as to what happened to the couple. In one of Fort Lauderdale's biggest boat yards, a yacht captain who lived in the Bahamas said that everybody knew a smuggler named Shorty killed those people. He was from that area, and he always carried a shotgun. The name of another islander named Little Jack was supposedly linked to the murder also. Interestingly, a Fort Lauderdale businessman who lived for many years on Staniel Key was asked about Shorty and Little Jack. He replied, Oh, those are the same guy. He was involved in all kinds of things in the Exumas. He went to Fox Hill Prison for smuggling, but the last thing the businessman knew was that Shorty was living in a small house on the hill in Nassau and still had plenty of speedboats. All of these statements made their way back to Harry. He says this case could have been solved. I had great faith in the U.S. government, and it's still inconceivable to me that they would cop a plea by claiming no jurisdiction when two American citizens were murdered. In December 1981, the Kalia was sailed home to the Fishtail Marina in Fort Myers Beach by Harry and Bill Kamer's friend Skip. It was to be cleaned up and eventually sold. Before the boat was clearing Nassau, however, it was held hostage by the government, who refused to release it until a $5,000 salvage fee had been paid. Luckily, by this time, the Bahamian government bowed to the pressure from the media waged by Harry and the Kamerer family. The Kalia was finally allowed to leave without a payment being made. On the way home, the boat, which had damage to its hull and was suffering from neglect, ran into heavy weather and bad seas. The sailors fought to keep headway as they neared the Florida coast, but the dinghy that trailed behind broke free, eventually sinking out of sight 
to join all the other sad stories and secrets that the bottom of the ocean holds. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't followed Twisted Travel and True Crime on social media, I'd like to invite you to do so on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. Recently, I received some great news. One of my goals for this podcast was to be able to entertain people from all over the world. I found out that this podcast is trending well in Taiwan, New Zealand, and Australia. This news made me so happy, and these are places I want to visit. In addition to these three countries, there are listeners in 46 other countries. My mind is blown. This is all thanks to you wonderful listeners. Thank you so very much. This week, I have some special thanks to give. First, to Shanabad for her support and kind words. I'd also like to thank Amy D. for her very kind words on social media and for giving the podcast a five-star review. Thanks so much to each and every one of you who have taken the time to rate and review the podcast. Finally, to SKA714, who wrote this review. This is my absolute favorite podcast. The host does an excellent job of laying out the facts and connecting the dots in both a suspenseful and concise way. It is entertaining and informative at the same time, and I look forward to each new episode. Thank you, and keep them coming. I'd like to say thank you very much. I am blessed to have wonderful listeners like you. To each and every one of you, I'd like to wish you fair winds and following seas.